The Way Out Podcast, episode 241. I'm David Poses. Um, I, uh, I'm a recovering uh, heroin addict. Um, I've been in recovery for 13 years. Um, I have two kids. I'm married. I'm a writer. I, I grew up in, uh, in a middle-class uh, suburb um, just outside of New York City. Um, my parents got divorced when I was four. And uh, that was, you know, a very traumatic experience. Um, I, I was very depressed as a young kid. I mean, as far like some of my earliest memories or my mom saying, you know, why are you so sad? Don't you want to be happy? Uh, stuff like that. And I, you know, I, I knew that I didn't want to be sad. Um, I didn't know how not to be sad. I didn't know why I was sad uh, or, or how to talk about it. And long before um, depression was like a word that I, even knew, um, I just, I, I thought something was terribly wrong with me. So this cop came to my school in fifth grade and he told us about all the different drugs that you can do and why you shouldn't do them. And he he told us this awful story about um, some kid who uh, took LSD and, and thought he was an orange and peeled off his skin. But then he said that the worst drug is heroin because it makes you, it's a, it's a painkiller that's so strong that you don't have any feelings. And I thought like, you know, I mean, he, he wasn't saying it like he was advertising for um, heroin, but I heard it like, this is the greatest thing in the world. I've got to get some of that. You know, by the time I was like 15, I had been prescribed all of the antidepressants that are remotely feasible um, on the market at the time. And none of them, either they didn't work or they did like very awful things to me. Ninth grade, when everybody starts experimenting with pot and alcohol, I, I tried both and I just, I, I couldn't stand them. So I, 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 I tracked down um, heroin when I was 16 um, and you know, it, it, it worked. It did exactly what I, I wanted it to. And by then, I mean, I was, you know, like thinking about killing myself all the time. So it wasn't really a matter of like, you know, oh, this is recreational drugs. It was like, I'm gonna die if I don't, you know, do this. And it, it, it killed um, my pain, which is what it's you know supposed to do. Um, and it, it really stopped me from killing myself. Yeah, it was, um, it, it was very memorable. Um, I mean, it was uh, like I, I could breathe for the first time. I was a functional addict from um, that, that first moment. Why, you know, um, heal the pain when I can just kill it? You know, you do heroin for every day for two weeks and, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're an old lady being prescribed it or, you know, you're a 16 year old kid, like you're gonna get sick if you stop. I just, all of the deception and the risk, and you know, I mean, like I'm driving to the Bronx every day. Um, I, I, I hated it. So I tried to stop a few times and it's just, you know, the, the withdrawal is brutal. At some point in the middle of it, um, I, I, I wasn't really on speaking terms with my father at that point. Um, and I, I called him. So, uh, you know, so, so off I went to, um, to Hazelden and and um, the woman who was you know the clinical director of whatever uh, and my counselor and, and and they're telling me that I have this disease and I'm going to end up dead on the side of the road if I don't um, put my life and will in God's hands and work the steps and it just it it didn't make any sense to me if they're saying depression is an excuse it has nothing to do with this. Heroin's causing your depression, you know, all this stuff. And I'm thinking like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm, something is horribly, like I'm just a defective person. There's no question that, um, you know, I was addicted to heroin, uh, you know, 
compulsive drug user, like whatever words you want to use, like there's no question that all of that was true. There was no ambiguity about it. I mean, they were explicitly telling me depression is an excuse, like basically, and, and, and really playing into the mental health stereotypes of like snap out of it. You're a wimp, like just snap out of it, stop using heroin and everything will be fine. I got kicked out of Hazelden um, early. I was clean um, for uh, like somewhere between two and three years. I never kept track of clean time because, um, you know, sobriety wasn't, or, or I, I just wanted to feel okay in my own skin. And I right. didn't really care how it, how it happened. Right. And at that point, I believed that something was just wrong with me. Like if they would have validated the depression, right. um, I could have gotten that checked out the next 13 years of my life. <clears throat> um, I would go from relapse to relapse, um, not really looking for it, but not really avoiding it. Um, if my emotional pain threshold reached its limit, you know, then then I would, you know, um, go out and, and, and look for it. Everybody in my life, I led them to believe that, um, you know, I, I, I got sober before um, Hazelden when I was 18 and I never looked back and I'm happy and you know, all that crap. I knew when the line was crossed and um, I called in for a refill and they gave it to me. And I knew that like, this is gonna be a massive problem if I don't stop this right now. So my wife went to the gym, my daughter and I walked to the drugstore to pick up the Percocet, she's two and a half. And we get home, I open the bottle in the bathroom and I did something I've never been able to do before. Um, I dropped all the pills in the toilet and flushed the toilet. Uh, and so I felt really good about myself then, mm -hmm. you know? because I'm, I'm buying into the idea that like, stop doing the drugs and everything's fine, you know? So, you know, five minutes later, it's like, well, this isn't done with me. I don't feel better. Like, why did I do that? You know, you know like, is there a way to get into the pipes and <laughs> you know, get them well? I had known about buprenorphine since before I started using heroin. So I was aware of it as something that gets you through withdrawal. I didn't know you could take it after. Sure. Um, and so, um, so I, I called this friend and um, so he said, and, uh, you know, you, you, you got to look into buprenorphine. I knew that methadone wasn't an option because I can't go to a clinic every day. Nobody knows about this. And he gave me four uh, milligrams right there. And it was like the lights came on. My psychiatrist, we, we talked about it. And he was like, you know, like clearly you need this in order to... Uh, to move forward. And I didn't tell anybody, including my wife, for the first 10 years. I wrote this book um, with the idea that like, this will be the way to explain this to everybody. Um, and maybe, you know, if my family doesn't kill me, maybe somebody else will want to read it and, you know, it'll help them too. Recovery is a process and then we have to validate everything that's going on, the, the whole picture and, um, you know, and, and, and find what works for us. My recovery could not start until buprenorphine. Welcome Way Out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast 
partners with All Recovery Rings and allrecoveryrings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's allrecoveryrings.com. The Way Out Podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution. This podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this installment of The Way Out, we've got an incredibly enlightening and supremely relevant interview with author of the new book, The Weight of Air, a story of the lies about addiction and the truth about recovery, and person in long-term recovery, David Poses. David's story is rooted in the all-too-common dual struggle of having a mental health disorder such as depression and addiction which creates an often incredibly difficult and complex chicken or the egg, which is the problem and which is the symptom kind of issue to address. Are the substances causing the mental health disorder? Or is the mental health disorder the root and the cause of the addiction? Certainly, there's plenty of evidence to support the fact that drug and alcohol abuse and addiction can exacerbate mental health disorders and indeed make difficult or impossible to effectively treat. Indeed, addiction can cause what might be best described as situational mental health issues like depression and anxiety. And once the addiction is treated effectively and recovery is achieved, the depression and anxiety lift or substantially improve. Conversely, the opposite is also true for many folks who are suffering from any one or a combination of severe and often chronic clinical anxiety, depression, or other mental health disorder that is causing such acute pain, the only option is to kill it or numb it with a substance of choice, which often turns into a near intractable addiction. For David, his severe depression ultimately led to heroin use, which ultimately led to a decade-plus long addiction. David shares how medication, buprenorphine, along with therapy, was the key for him to achieve rewarding and enduring recovery, 
when nothing else prior had worked, and why this can and should be a viable and available treatment option for those in the throes of opioid addiction and desperately looking for a way to safely and effectively stop opioid abuse and misuse and address their mental health so they can begin the life-changing process that is recovery. So listen up. David Poses, thank you so much for taking time to join us here on the Way Out podcast to share your journey to and through recovery to this point and about the new book you wrote, The Weight of Air, a story of the lies about addiction and the truth about recovery. Before we get into any of that, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll get started. Okay. Um, hi, I'm David Poses. Um, I, uh, I'm a recovering uh, heroin addict. Um, I've been in recovery for 13 years. Um, I have two kids. I'm married. I'm a writer. Um, I don't know. What else do you want to know? <laughs> That's enough. That's a great start. 13 years of continuous recovery from a heroin addiction is no small thing. And if you're anything like me, you don't do that by accident. So we're going to talk about how you did that. But before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about what it was like for you growing up? Tell us a little bit about that. And then we'll talk about when and how addiction and substance use took hold in your life. Sure. Um, So I I grew up in a, in a, middle-class uh, suburb um, just outside of New York City. Um, my parents got divorced when I was four, and uh, that was, you know, a very traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was very depressed as a young kid. I mean, as far, like, some of my earliest memories or my mom saying, you know, why are you so sad? Don't you want to be happy? Uh, stuff like that. And I, you know, I, I knew that I didn't want to be sad. Um, I didn't know how not to be sad. I didn't know why I was sad uh, or, or how to talk about it. And long before um, depression was like a word that I even knew, um, I just, I, I thought something was terribly wrong with me. Mm. Um, I didn't know what to do about it. And um, so my mom started taking me to therapy when I was like five uh, to, to see a psychiatrist on a weekly basis. And you know, I was just so um, ashamed of these bad feelings that uh, I, I, you know, basically just denied everything and said everything was fine. Um, and so in in fifth grade, I, I grew up in the 80s uh, during, you know, the D.A.R.E., um, Nancy Reagan's whole thing. And uh, so this cop came to my school in fifth grade and he told us about all the different drugs that you can do and why you shouldn't do them. And he said, um, you can't drive a car if you drink alcohol. Uh, you can't, um, you, you, you get stupid if you smoke weed. Um, cocaine makes you angry. And, um, and he, he told us this awful story about um, some kid who uh, took LSD and, and thought he was an orange and peeled off his skin. And, um, you know, so I, I listened to all of that. And I thought like, you know, I, none of that, I have no use for any of that stuff. That's awful. Um, and, and I was terrified. Of, I knew I would never use hallucinogens. Um, but then he said that the worst drug is heroin. 
because it makes you, it's a, it's a painkiller that's so strong that you don't have any feelings. And I thought like, you know, I mean, he, he wasn't saying it like he was advertising for um, heroin, but I heard it like, this is the greatest thing in the world. I've got to get some of that, mm. you know? So in, in my neck of the woods, um, obviously this is very long before the opioid crisis, uh, before cell phones, <laughs> you know, um, back when there were street dealers. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and heroin was this very hardcore substance that was um, just, you know, impossible to, um, to find. And so um, that, that was really kind of this sustaining hope, I guess, at the time, like I was so miserable and I didn't know what to do about it. And it was that kind of like, you know, oh, I'll, I'll find this stuff and it'll solve my problems. Mm. Um, so like my, my psychiatrist uh, figured out that I was depressed anyway. <laughs> despite <my laughs> despite best your best efforts. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, so I, you know, by the time I was like 15, I had been prescribed all of the antidepressants that are you know, remotely feasible um, on the market at the time. And none of them, either they didn't work or they did like very awful things to me. Um, and, uh, and, and when my friends like, you know, ninth grade, when everybody starts experimenting with pot and alcohol, I, I tried both and I just, I, I couldn't stand them. Um, I mean, I, I got drunk once when I was 15 and, and I, I, you know, I've like had sips of this or that since, but um, that was the only time that I've been drunk. Um, and I wasn't into pot at all. Uh, and so, um, but, you know, everything was around and, and my friends were using it like it was, you know, a garnish for activities or something. Right. Um, nobody was on heroin. And so I, I finally found it. Um, so this is like almost like the Holy grail for you at this point. Well, like, where is this stuff? And I could relate to that because I grew up in the late eighties, early nineties and heroin was nowhere Yeah, yeah, yeah. at that time. Like nowhere. It, it, right. And I mean, the other thing is, you know, like now it seems like everybody's aware that heroin is an opioid and, right. um, you know, codeine and Vicodin and like it's all, you know, like alcohol, like um, beer and, you know, tequila and whatever. It's just, it's a category. Um, but at the time it was like heroin was this thing off to the side that was just, you know, you, you can't, you can't touch it. It's going to, you know, kill you in five seconds. Like rock stars um, did it, right? Kurt Cobain did yeah. her, you know, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. So, um, so, and everything else, like, you know, I mean, I remember in high school, um, I just, I, I couldn't stand pot and alcohol. Um, but I would, you know, you go to a party and they give you a cup, like I would, I would walk around with like those giant, you know, plastic cups of beer and like pour it out in, um, you know, wherever, wherever I could, because you don't want to get made fun of for right. not, not being cool. But like, I just, right. I, I couldn't stand it. I cannot relate to that, by the way, David, I cannot relate to that at all. But go ahead. I, no, I mean, I, it's funny because like I, I, <laughs> I had these friends in college who would get stoned all the time. And and, right. I, and and one of them said, you know, look, if you do it every day, like I, I would, you know, try a little like puff here and there. And um, and this friend said at some point, like you have no time. Like the problem is you don't do this enough. Like if you really dedicated yourself. You got to commit. That's what he said. You smoke bong hits every day and you'll be able to go to class and not fall asleep, but you're a lightweight and you're going to forget it. So, you got to commit to it, David. You can't just, you're either in or you're not. Yeah, I was, I was totally uncommitted to becoming, um, you know, a, a pothead or an alcoholic. <laughs> I, I try, I mean, I, I tried, I really, I would have loved to, it would have been much more convenient. To right. 
you know, it's it's legal. It was everywhere. I mean, it would have been great. It's it's not for lack of trying. Um, but anyway, so um, so I I I, I, I tracked down um, heroin when I was sixteen, um, and you know, it 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 worked. It did exactly what I I wanted it to, and. By then, I mean, I was, you know, like thinking about killing myself all the time. So it wasn't really a matter of like, you know, oh, this is recreational drugs. It was mm-hmm. like, I'm going to fucking die if I don't, you know, do this. And it it, it killed um, my pain, which is what it's, you know, supposed to do. Um, and it, it really stopped me from killing myself. Do you remember, David, the first time you did heroin? Was that a memorable experience for you? Was it a Nirvana kind of experience for you yeah it was um it, it was very memorable um i mean it was uh like i i could breathe for the first time um i mean I, you know i i knew that it was a painkiller at the time i wasn't aware of all of the science and the opioids and all that kind of business but um i uh you know i i thought of it like if your foot got chopped off um and somebody gave you heroin uh you know it would it would hurt a lot less um, so, I mean, I, I went into it feeling like, you know, I, I mean, I, I was ready to kill myself. Like I hated myself. I, I was so terribly depressed. And, um, whereas the alcohol, I mean, I don't know exactly how much I drank the, the night of the, you know, bad booze experience, but it went from this tastes disgusting to I'm throwing up and like, I can't see anything in, mm-hmm. in like five seconds. And with the pot, the times that I'd smoked pot, it was like, you know, I, I took like one or two hits and I was like completely stoned to the point that like, like I, I, it was unfathomable to me that anybody could drive on these, you know, things. Cause like, I, I couldn't even stand up. Um, and with the heroin, it was like, I could totally function. I felt great. Like I I'd never felt like that before. And I thought like, this is just what normal people feel like normally. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that was it. So it was, it was like, um, I couldn't understand why the cop said what he said, why anybody thought that like this was such a hardcore substance. I mean, you know, it's, it's like today we're, we're aware that, you know, nobody wakes up and starts drinking at seven o'clock in the morning and, you know, functions with any degree of, of functionality, but there are millions of people all over, all over the world that are prescribed, um, you know, Oxycontin or whatever. And, and it's not just, you know, we know that they can function, like they need it specifically to function. Um, so, you know, I was a functional addict from, um, that, that first moment. I mean, you know, the next, the next day was, um, I woke up the next day and I, and it was like, why wouldn't I do this again? Like, I'd have to be out of my mind not to do this again. I I feel great. Like, you know, what am I thinking? And Uh, I think that's such a common experience, David, when we find our drug of choice, mine definitely being alcohol and pot being a close second to that, that this is what I've been looking for. This is how I've been wanting to feel. This is how other people must feel. Exactly. Yeah. I've been feeling like a trash can up until this point. And now I feel free. Yeah. I feel great. Right. And I am released from all of this bondage of these negative feelings, you know, I, I yeah, don't have to deal with it anymore. I mean, that's that, it. That's the thing. Exactly. So like from that point, um, there was, you know, why would I bother dealing with the depression uh, when I, you know, why, 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 you know, um, heal the pain when I can just kill it. Uh, 
and that was really it. And so I think, um, you know, from, from there, it was like, um, I just, there, there was no need. Uh, it was, it was impractical. You know, why would I, why would I want to, um, you know, treat the depression when I can feel, you know, this good. And so, um, it very quickly turned into, um, you know, I mean, I, I was, I don't know the point at which, um, you know, I became physically dependent on it, but, um, you know, I mean, at this point, I'm, I'm aware of the, you know, biological realities of it. Like, you know, you do heroin for every day for two weeks and, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're an old lady being prescribed it or, you know, you're a 16 year old kid, like you're going to get sick if you stop. Um, so, uh, you know, that was, um, that was rough. Um, and I just, all of the deception and the risk and, you know, I mean, like I'm driving to the Bronx every day. Um, I, I, I hated it. And, um, and, and the lies and, you know, it was just, it was, um, I, I couldn't stand it. It wasn't like, like I, I wanted to feel okay, but I didn't want all the shit that came with it. <laughs> you know? um, and I was very resentful of the idea, you know, Hey, why can't I just have this? I feel good. Like if my foot got chopped off, a doctor would prescribe, you know, morphine and that would be fine. Um, you know, so, um, so I tried to stop a few times and it's just, you know, the, the withdrawal is brutal. Um, and when you know, it's, you know, waiting for you in the Bronx, like why, you know, I, I just need to, you know, like there, there's always a reason, um, not to, because who wants to feel like shit for a few days or however long it is. I mean, it's, it's not just the physical miserableness. It's, um, you know, it really turns up the volume on all of the emotional pain also. I mean, you know, you're, you're, um, it, it's brutal. So, uh, a couple of weeks before my 19th birthday or, you know, maybe a month or whatever, um, my mom went to Florida for, uh, a, a couple of weeks or you know, days or long enough that I could, you know, feasibly kick without, um, anybody around. And so I gave, uh, my best friend, um, my car and all my money and I just made sure that I had this, you know, kind of no exit stranded, um, uh, you know, kick um, cold turkey type of situation. And um, at some point in the middle of it, um, I, I, I wasn't really on speaking terms with my father at that point. Um, and I, I called him for some reason um, in the middle of this. And I, I to this day, don't remember calling him. Um, I had taken... My friend, when he when he took my car, he gave me um, some clonopin, and he was very clear that you know you take one and you know, whatever. And of course, I took all of them because I was <laughs> brutal, and I'd never taken any of that stuff before. So um, you know, uh, so I, it, it knocked me out. Um, and at some point during that time, I, I called my father, um, and he showed up with this friend of his, and um, and they uh, they took me to this detox at this local hospital. Um, and I didn't want to be there. So I, I left, I called my father and told him to pick me up. And, um, he did, we went back to my mom's house and, you know, my, my mom came home like a few minutes later, she came back from Florida. Um, so my father had, uh, my, my aunt, his sister, um, was a heroin addict, uh, in the seventies, which I did not know. And she went to Hazelden, um, possibly right around the corner uh, in, in Plymouth, Minnesota. That's a hop and a skip from okay. the Way Out podcast studios. I had a feeling it was close. Um, so, uh, you know, so, so off I went to, um, to Hazelden. And, the, you know, as soon as I got there, um, 
driving to the facility in the van with, you know, just the guy that drives you to the place. Right. He's talking about he's got the disease and the disease. And I had never heard addiction referred to as a disease in my life. So I, I, I honestly had no idea what he was talking about. Um, and and I, I figured it out in the context, um, you know, fast enough. And then when we got there and um, the woman who was, you know, the clinical director of whatever uh, and my counselor and, and, and they're telling me that I have this disease and I'm going to end up dead on the side of the road if I don't um, put my life and will in God's hands and work the steps. And it just, it, it didn't make any sense to me. Um, my mom had had cancer twice uh, by then. And I, I was raised Jewish, I, m- more in like a cultural than a religious sort of a way. Mm-hmm. So it just, it sounded like, you know, I made a very conscious choice to stick needles in my arm. My mom didn't ask for cancer. Um, God didn't do anything for mom. And, uh, you know, like, is he busy helping, you know, the junkies and the drunks and the crackheads? Like, you know, what? <laughs> so, um, so it, it, it just, it, it made no sense. And when they were talking about, you know, you have this disease and all that, um, and I said, you know, like, I think um, they knew that, that I hated alcohol and pot and that I wasn't, you know, this kind of, you know, multi-drug person. Right. Um, and they're talking about you know, gateway drugs and co-addiction co, uh, co and, you know, all this stuff. And I said, um, you know, that, that depression was my gateway. Um, and, I, and I gave the, you know, the pain analogy and all that. And, and they're going like, no the heroin caused your pain. Mm. Um, I mean, basically everything that they said was like, um, your foot got chopped off. The doctor prescribed morphine. That's what chopped off your foot. Uh, the only way your foot is going to feel better is if you stop taking the painkillers. Um, you know, so all of these things that just didn't really line up with your experience and line up with what your reality was. Yeah. I mean, you know, like that's, that's just like, um, the, the, you know, kind of fundamental biology of how that stuff works. Like, there's no question that, um, you know, I was addicted to heroin, uh, you know, compulsive drug user, like whatever words you want to use, like, there's no question that all of that was true, but the, the kind of like dots that they were connecting. And it's um, an interesting dynamic, David, the way you walk through that, because, most treatment centers are really borrowing pretty heavily on the original 12 steps born out of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's where that really disease concept comes from, which makes some sense specifically with alcoholics, because not everybody who drinks becomes an alcoholic, right? right? So that there's a certain segment of the population that's going to become an alcoholic once they try alcohol not everybody and so this idea that you have this allergy and you have this disease makes some sense i think in that context but as you well said everybody literally everybody who does heroin every day for two weeks will become physically dependent on heroin and that's not a disease that's a physical dependency that you will develop, not might, not, you know, because you have some sort of weird biology in your body, you will become addicted. You will. 
Yes, absolutely. Right. And so, I mean, it, you know, it, it's interesting that you should say um, the thing about that, that it was, you know, developed with, with alcoholism in mind. I mean, you know, I read something a while ago that um, when AA was developed, they, they labeled addiction a disease specifically to um, destigmatize, right. uh, you know, because that's, that's better than, um, you know, uh, that there's something wrong with you. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you know, at, at that time, um, addiction was thought to be an incurable moral defect. That's right. Correct. So, it was a moral failing. It, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You are you're, a weak person. You're, you you're can't bad, control your alcohol. You're a bad, weak person right. and we can't, we can't do anything for you. You're just, you're fucked. Um, right. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, you know, and, um, right. And they're like, no, this is a disease. This is something that, you know, they can't. Yeah. Con right. Yes. So, I mean, I guess, um, all, all of that, like I, I, it occurred to me at the time when they're talking about uh, drugs and alcohol and, you know, recreational drugs and the way we kind of like they're, they're saying your drug of choice doesn't matter. It's all the same thing and all the stuff. And I'm thinking right. like, you know, if every, if each type of substance affects our neural pathways differently, and you're telling me that this program works, like I, the, the idea of the steps of, um, you know, making amends and the moral inventory and like all of those things, like, you know, I, I never really spent a lot of time around um, alcoholics or, or even just people who drink. I mean, I, I'm, I'm so kind of averse to that, that like I was never, you know, hanging out in bars in college and, you know, stuff like that. I, I have this friend who I've known for a very long time. Um, he's a recovering alcoholic and he, he relapsed at some point and he called me. I had never been around him drunk, never heard him talk drunk. You know, there was, there was no exposure to that. And he, and he called me one night at like two o'clock in the morning and he starts screaming at me. Um, you know, he was, he was drunk and, um, and it, it was awful. Um, and, a, and a couple of days later when we spoke again, he said, you know, um, I think I, he's, he's huge on uh, AA. It, it, it definitely works for him and, and, and that's great. Um, and he was saying, you know, I, I think that experience, uh, really made me realize that this program is, is geared towards alcoholism because that tends to make people so much more, you know, belligerent and, um, you know, these things. And, and, you know, it's like the, all the, the people who smoke weed and they're like, dude, it's just weed, you know, nobody's killing anybody. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you, you hear that. And, and I think, you know, there's something to be said for that kind of separation of, of everything affects us differently. So the fact that like, they're telling me in rehab, um, I mean, not just invalidating the emotional pain, but right. category, you know, it, 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 it's an excuse and all like that. It's like, um, you know, I, I felt like I was either crazy or, or I didn't know what. And so they told my mom um, that uh, she's got to get rid of all the alcohol in the house because I'm going to get desperate enough for a high that I'll drink hand sanitizer if that happens. And I, I remember saying to her, you know, you know that that's, that's not true. I mean, get rid of all the, I don't care if you get rid of, rid of all the alcohol, but it's important to me that you know what's actually going on here. And she just looked at me and she said, like, what if you're wrong? You know? Hmm. Um, and at the time as a 19 year old kid, I, you know, I, I was too incensed to, uh, to, you know, even, even give that, you know, second thought now as, as a parent, I mean, I would have done exactly the same thing. Somebody, some, some expert tells me that my kid might die if they, are around booze, like forget it. I'll fucking burn down every <laughs> store within a hundred miles. 
not even a question. Um, you know, so, so, um, but with that, like the idea that it really played into my underlying thought of um, there's something terribly wrong with me. You know, like if, if they're saying depression is an excuse, it has nothing to do with this, heroin's causing your depression, you know, all this stuff. And I'm thinking like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm something is horribly, like I'm just a defective person. They're kind of being gaslit. And I'm sure they're not doing that on purpose because they fundamentally believe they do. They, that this they, is the right model. Absolutely. And certainly we've interviewed plenty of folks that their drug of choice was heroin or cocaine and subsequently ended up having a secondary problem with alcohol. So that that absolutely is a reality for some folks. Sure, sure. Right. Exactly. And and so that's the thing is that, like, I never um, identified with the, you know, poly substance excuse me, all, all of that. And, and, and I get that it exists. I know plenty of people who are, you know, I'm addicted to whatever you have. What you got, aholics. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, there's no question that's real. And, and I mean, you know, I, I think it's interesting how when we talk about this, um, you know, genetics and, 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 and uh, you know, what you call ism and, and all that, like we, we really only focus on the moral um, addictions. Whereas like, you know, if you're um, a workaholic and you make a billion dollars a year and you never see your kids and you're an asshole to your wife, um, you know, you're, you're just a great guy. You're celebrated. You're, you're celebrated. If you're a workaholic and you make 30 grand a year, um, you know, and, and, and this, everything else is the same, like you're a fucking asshole. And, um, you know, or, or if you're, you know, um, uh, I, I have this, um, you know, I, I know people who are into, you know, the um, ultra marathons and the Ironmans and all that. Um, you know, I, I know um, someone who exercise junkies, right? Yeah, exercise junkies, right? Exactly. So like, if, if you if I were to say, like, um, you know, running was the only thing to make me feel better. I ran and ran and ran and, and, and it was so rough on my body. And like, I was waking up at four o'clock in the morning and I wasn't seeing my family and, you know, all of the like, you know, compulsive use despite negative consequences, nobody's going to say um, the running is causing your problems. Right. Or even like that, that TV show um, hoarders, you know, they talk about, um, uh, you know, well, Jimmy's problem. It's, it's not that he like buying shit and sticking garbage in his garage is not his problem. It's that his wife died in this horrible tragedy five years ago and he hasn't gotten over it. That's right. So, so hoarding is a compulsive, um, you know, it's, it's compulsive behavior and we know that it's not going to stop until we treat the what's causing it. Right. The hoarding is a symptom. Hoarding is a symptom. Right. So I saw my addiction as a symptom and they're saying, no, 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 you're totally wrong. The addiction is a symptom. So it's like compulsive drug use is a mental health disorder addiction is a medical condition. So like when they talk about, you know, sobriety is the antidote to addiction, it totally is. You stop using whatever it is. And once the withdrawal is over, like you're done. That's the most acute symptom. Compulsive drug use, sobriety is not the answer to that. Like you need this whole regimen of of recovery to go along with it. And I think very few people are stuffing whatever they're stuffing in their bodies because the problem is stuffing shit in your body. Like Right. That, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe there are some, you know, I mean, uh, again, the idea that like, you know, you take heroin for two weeks and, and you're addicted to it and all that, like, that's all very true. But, um, you know, these are um, op- opioids. I mean, they they work by, um, you know, flooding your brain with dopamine and serotonin. And 
they bind to your opiate receptors. They saturate your opiate receptors. And that's the only part of your brain that regulates pain and emotional well-being. So, you know, the biological, you know, mechanics of a hit of alcohol, blackjack, um, you know, sex, whatever it is running, um, it's all the same in terms of a hit, but the actual, you know, what it, what it does, like that's exactly what this stuff is designed for. Um, you know, so when you feel good, whether you find the alcohol or, or the heroin or whatever it is, um, you know, it's all the same thing. The compulsion to keep using doesn't go away when, when withdrawal ends. That's it. Um, that's it. And really when we talk about folks I'm included in this group that end up with a substance use disorder, alcoholism, addiction under that substance use disorder umbrella. Adverse childhood experiences are extremely common. And so are co-occurring mental health disorders. It's like 97%. Bingo. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing is that, you know, I mean, I went to rehab in 1995. So I want to believe that it's different um, 26 years later. Um, You know, so, but the idea of, I mean, there was no ambiguity about it. I mean, they were explicitly telling me depression is an excuse, like basically, and, and, and really playing into the mental health stereotypes of like snap out of it, you know, like, what are you complaining? I mean, like we, you know, when I brought up the, 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 you know, chopping the foot off analogy, it's like, you know, we know that we can't will away physical pain, but we think that we can will away psychological pain. And so, you know, it was like, look, like you, you're a wimp, like just snap out of it, stop using heroin and everything will be fine. That's right. Um, and that's exactly my experience. When I first went to treatment, when I was a teenager, my mom died when I was 11 years old, certainly had a devastating impact on my emotional well-being drugs and alcohol were definitely the solution to that and it was substance focused purely 100 percent. my hazelden experience six years ago was radically different it's a much more integrated approach now i think they they, i read something about they changed um they changed a lot Um, they did yeah. They did. They made some fundamental changes in terms of their baseline approach. And they really integrate mental health services right. as a parallel. And that was transformational for me to be able to address my trauma and subsequent PTSD yeah. and mental health along with my substance use and only by addressing those things in parallel was I really truly able to get unstuck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there, there's some statistic about um, uh, it's, it's 95% of, um, of opioid users have a co-occurring mental health disorder. Mm. Um, 97% in rehab are treated for addiction only. So, um, you know, I mean, I, I got kicked out of Hazelden um, early. Uh, you got kicked out. How did you manage to get kicked out? Um, I made out with this girl. <laughs> um, and they were very clear that you shouldn't do that. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it's got, a good way to do it. I mean, I if got, you're going to go out, I mean, I, I guess that's a pretty way, a good way to go out. 
Right. But so they, um, it, it happened to be the weekend that my mom was visiting and, um, and they, they, you know, basically kind of shoehorned her into this tough love ultimatum. Sure. Um, if he doesn't go to a halfway house, he's going to be dead in five seconds. So, you know, um, like I'm going to get cut off or, or I'm going to go. So they sent me to a place in West Palm beach, a Hazelden facility. And, um, the, there was a, I had a friend there who I'd met in, in Minnesota, um, who was like one of, you know, two other heroin addicts that were there. Um, and I get down there and I was so happy to see him. And we had really just kind of bonded over a mutual disdain for, um, you know, all of this and like, you know, the idea of like keeping track of your clean time and all that, um, you know, relapse was inevitable. So what's the point? And, um, so I was down there for like, you know, certainly no more than a week when he, this was in, um, in the nineties in that part of Florida. I, I, I hear that it's still a little wonky today, but it was definitely so, um, you know, uh, just corruptible back then where, uh, he got the number of, uh, a dealer's phone number from somebody who worked at a nearby detox clinic mm. that would hook you up with a contact so that they could admit you. Um, and you know, they were, they were offering like hundred dollar visa gift cards. And, um, you know, anyway, so, so he gets this number and, um, and I, I hesitated and I really almost couldn't believe that I was hesitating because I was so clear that I, I was going to, relapse, but my mom had just seen me get kicked out of Hazelden. And what are the chances we're not going to get caught? Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's it, like, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I, I had to, you know, figure out some other way to do it. And so, you know, he, he agreed and, and we talked about it. We were like, yeah, we, sh we showed them, you know, we're, we're in control of this, uh, you know, all like that. So um, I went to bed that night feeling, you know, really good about myself. And when I woke up in the next morning, um, he was dead. Uh, he overdosed. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So he, he said he wouldn't uh, call the dealer and, and then he did. Um, and that was, uh, that was a, I'm never going near drugs again for the rest of my life type of moment. Hmm. Um, my grandparents lived like an hour away. I called them, they picked me up. Um, and so that night we're, we're talking about going out for dinner and uh, like I, I needed to you know, shave and shower and all that. So my grandfather said, um, you know, razors are over here and you hear all this stuff. So I, I go into the bathroom to get, um, you know, razors and shaving cream. And there's this like giant bottle of Darvocet, um under the sink with the razors. And uh, I don't think they, no, they don't make Darvocet anymore. Darvocet was like um, a somewhere between Percocet and morphine. Sure. Um, and, you know, Ton, like the biggest prescription bottle you've ever seen in your life. Um, and I just, I, you know, it was like, uh, after a few minutes, I just, I, I, I'm, I'm going to do this. So just get it out of the way, you know? Um, and so I, I stayed there for another week. Um, I limited my uh, Darvocet heist. Um, I, I didn't take them with me. You know, I took like one a day for the next week. And then, and then that was it. And I was, I was clean. Um, for uh like somewhere between two and three years um i i didn't i didn't keep i never kept track of clean time because um you know sobriety wasn't or or i i just wanted to feel okay in my own skin and i didn't right. really care how it how it happened right and at that point 
I believed that something was just wrong with me. Like if they would have validated the depression, right. Um, I could have gotten that checked out, but they're going like, basically you're, you know, you're just, you can't snap out. Your problem is that you're an addict. That's your problem, right? That's what you keep hearing is the problem. You're an, is it, is that you're an addict. And once you fix that, then everything else will get better. Right. Exactly. So, um, so I was just, you know, sobriety wasn't getting any easier, but I was, I was doing it because, uh, you know, why not? Um, and so, uh, and were you scared straight a little bit too, just to oh, some yeah. extent because of the yes. overdose of your friend? Yes, I, I was. And I think the thing with the Darva set was, you know, I wasn't looking for it. Um, and I didn't like take all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know if that matters or not, but, but you're trying to manage it, right? There, you're, you're in this I, mode where you're trying to manage it. Yeah. And I, and I knew I had to get out of there because I was going to take all the Darva set if I stayed right. there. So, you know, I, I left and I, I really believe that the next two or three years was um, the the scared straight kind of wore off after a while. And then it just became a matter of there just wasn't opportunity. You know, I mean, I was away at college in Vermont. I was in London. I was in places where I just like it was an access issue. Like if you would have knocked on my door at any moment and said, hey, I've got, you know, coding, I would have taken it. No question. Right. Um, but I wasn't looking for it, you know. And the depression was still very real for you during this time. Yeah, it was, it was awful. And I, you know, I was just, it was very confusing. I I didn't know what to do. You know, I I didn't, I didn't drink just because I I didn't want to, Um, you know, I mean, like I smoked pot a few times, but really only because my friends were like, you know, just try it. Um, And and I hated it. So, you know, that was, that was that. Um, And so uh, anyway, so I'm, I'm, it's this summer, uh, and there's this homeless girl on the street and I, you know, I always give homeless people money. So I put $5 in her cup and she asked if I wanted to smoke a joint. And I said, no. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if you've got any heroin on you, you know, I'll take that. And she said, um, if you buy me a bag, I will take you to the place. Um, and so, you know, I told that story to somebody uh, recently. And, and they were like, um, you know, what made you ask this girl, you know, whatever. And, and I was like, I've probably asked a thousand people like, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure I, you know, have jokingly said that to, you know, who knows how many people along And most people are like, ha, 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 ha. Right. that's right. crazy. Why would I have heroin? David? Yeah, exactly. right. I mean, I, you know, and, and, and that was kind of the way that, that I, I'm like, I was, I was high on heroin at work. Um, you know, and, uh, and people would be drinking and they would ask why I'm not drinking. And I would say like, well, you know, cause the company only supports legal, substances but if they had heroin i would do it in a minute you know ha, 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 you're so funny exactly. um, uh so i mean I, I i my arm was bleeding at work like blood in my sleeve and um and somebody saw it and they asked what happened and i said like i just shot up in the bathroom they just nobody believed me um and that was exactly and i wouldn't either I- <laughs> right, right no idea um so uh anyway so so with this girl um I, I ended up, uh, it was like a summer of, of relapse. Um, and I had to go back to school. And I mean, long story short, I, I, I got ripped off and went back to school um, in withdrawal and, and it was brutal. Um, and that was basically the next 13 years of my life. <clears throat> um, I would go from relapse to relapse, um, not really looking for it, but not really avoiding it. Um, if my emotional pain threshold reached its limit, you know, then then I would you know, um, go out and, and, and look for it. And I thought of it like the physical pain, like, you know, if, if I was in chronic pain and I was trying to manage it with Tylenol, um, and then something awful happened, you know, I would call a doctor and be like, Hey, I need, you know, 
bring out the vitamin. Um, so during that time, I, I, I built a, a you know, successful career. I got married. Um, my wife and I had a baby. Nobody, everybody in my life, I led them to believe that, um, you know, I, I, I got sober before um, Hazel did when I was 18 and I never looked back and I'm happy and, you know, all that crap. Um, so, uh, so when my daughter was born, um, I happened to be clean at the time, but I had been on, on, you know, whatever, um, uh, any combination of, uh, you know, Oxycontin or, um, uh, poppy, um, dried poppies. I was making this tea out of it. Um, so, so after the wedding, I, I was clean. And then when my daughter was two, I had to have this surgery and, um, they prescribed Percocet and that was fine. And then I had this like very bizarro situation that I ended up back in the hospital. And, um, and when I left, they gave me a prescription for Percocet, which, you know, everybody knew my history and they were like, clearly you need this, you know, it's fine. Um, but I, I knew when the physical pain ended, um, I knew when the line was crossed and um, I called in for a refill and they gave it to me. And I knew that like, this is going to be a massive problem if I don't stop this right now. So, um, so my wife went to the gym, my daughter and I walked to the drugstore to pick up the Percocet. She's two and a half and we get home, um, the refill and, um, I, I flushed it. Uh, I opened the bottle in the bathroom and I did something I've never been able to do before. Um, I dropped all the pills in the toilet and flushed the toilet. Uh, and so I felt really good about myself then, mm. you know, because I'm, I'm buying into the idea that like, stop doing the drugs and everything's fine, you know? And it's this physical manifestation of I'm done with these, I'm right? With this. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. Exactly. Right. So, you know, five minutes later, it's like, well, this isn't done with me. I don't feel better. Like, why did I do that? You know, you know, like, is there a way to get into the pipes and <laughs> you know, get them out? Uh, and I can very much identify with being in this space for an extended period of time where it's sort of like you're bouncing on the bottom of the ocean floor, you know, like exactly. Uh, what it was. Yeah. And yeah, has scuba tanks and, and flippers. right. You're just trying to look like you're not drowning. That's it. And you're telling everybody everything's cool. It's cool. Yeah. It's cool. I got sober a long time ago. It's not a problem anymore. It was a phase like that's then that was then. Yeah. But I but I'm doing it and I'm only doing it when the pain becomes so unbearable and right. it's so unbearable to be in my own skin. Right. That I have to do this thing. And if you were me and if you felt like me and if you did, you would do this too. kind of thought. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, nobody, I mean, my wife, I had, you know, relapsed for years right under her nose. She had no idea. So when I was in the hospital and they're talking about the, you know, the morphine and the Percocet, my family's like, you got to do this. I mean, you're, you're, you're dying here, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, you know, because nobody knew that anything, you know, I, right. at that point, everybody in my life believed that I had been, um, you know, clean for 13 years. Right. So clearly it's not a problem. I mean, my mom knew at that point that I wasn't an alcoholic in the making and, you know, all that. Um, so, so I didn't tell, so, you know, my daughter obviously knew what happened, but she was, you know, could barely speak at that point. I didn't tell my wife. Um, I started seeing a psychiatrist and I had known about buprenorphine since before I started using heroin in the nineties. The guy who, um, I got my first bit of heroin from 
one of his friends was in a buprenorphine clinical trial. He was in a buprenorphine clinical trial. So I was aware of it as something that gets you through withdrawal. I didn't know you could take it after. Sure. Um, and so, um, so I, I called this friend and, um, so he said, uh, you know, you, you, you got to look into buprenorphine and, um, and I was like, you know, I mean, and every step of the way, like I, I knew the methadone wasn't an option because I can't go to a clinic every day. Nobody knows about this and I'm not right. going to tell anybody, you know, um, I can't hide, I can't hide that. So, you know, I, I knew that I could hide buprenorphine and he explained that it's a, it's a maintenance drug also, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, so at the time there were, um, I want to say like six, uh, buprenorphine doctors within 200 miles of my house. I called all of them. Excuse me. This is like a month later. So my system was totally clean at this point. And the first five said, um, we can't treat you. You don't have dope in your system. And, you know, I explained the, the paradox that if I have to go out and score, I'm not coming to the appointment and I have this kid and I don't want to die. Will you please help me? Sorry, we can't. So the last guy on the list said the same thing. And I said the same thing. And, and I was just like, look, if, if you don't help me, I'm, I'm get, like, do you want my blood on your hands? Because I'm, this is not going to end well. Um, you know, and you don't want that. So, so he, he agreed to see me, uh, see me. He had an opening, you know, like an hour later, he was 10 minutes from my office. So I went and saw him and, um, and he gave me four uh, milligrams right there. And it was like, the lights came on um, and I knew that that was exactly what I needed because recovery, like when you're at the bottom of the ocean, you're too busy focused on not focusing on not drowning to, you know, heal the wounds that led you to the bottom of the ocean in the first place. Um, if I'll mix metaphors. So, um, you know, so from there, my psychiatrist, we, we talked about it and he was like, you know, like clearly you need this in order to, uh, to move forward. So, um, so that was it. So I, I was on buprenorphine. We, we, uh, ramped up my dose. I got to 24 milligrams. That was totally comfortable and fine. Um, and I didn't tell anybody, including my wife for the first 10 years. And by then, um, you know, it was like 2017 opioid crisis was a national health emergency. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I had watched that progress and, um, you know, I feel like I saw that coming from a mile away. Like I wasn't the least bit surprised. And I, I saw all this misinformation um, in the news and it, it was, it was making me crazy. I had lost so many friends to overdose. Like, you know, nobody, I was, it was the guilt of, of secrecy and the, you know, maybe I can do something about this. And, and, you know, it was like, I'm actively working against the changes I want to see in the world by, you know, my silence. Um, so I wrote this book um, with the idea that like, this will be the way to explain this to everybody. Um, and maybe, you know, if my family doesn't kill me, maybe somebody else will want to read it and, you know, it'll help them too. Um, so when the first draft was done and, and I wrote it like, you know, it's not like it was you know, sparkling clean and, and, and great. I mean, it was just, you know, banged it out in like a month. And, um, and I, I told my wife, everything. Um, and if she had reacted any differently, there wouldn't have been a second draft. Um, I mean, I, I went into that conversation thinking that 
you know, there's a very good chance. Like I saw it as such a huge betrayal. Like, you know, I'm, 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 I mean, I've never cheated on her, but like, I might as well have, you know, been sleeping with other women for the first, you know, however long of our, we had been together for um, almost 18 years at that point. So she was just so compassionate and mm. understanding and so gracious. Um, and I started opening up to other people. Um, I got a literary agent and it just was so, you know, by then, like I understood that depression is a distortion and the buprenorphine was effective for depression because, you know, it saturates my opiate receptors. So, mm. you know, if, if depression is a, a degenerative biological condition, like that wasn't going to improve on its own. Like it, it just wasn't. And, you know, I could white knuckle it as much as I want to, but like, I wasn't going to. Um, so it was really the, the combination of the buprenorphine and the therapy, uh, you know, the, the buprenorphine raised the, you know, basement of my, um, you know, emotional, uh, you know, whatever. And, um, and the, and the, the, the therapy, you know, kind of squashed it down. So, you know, I was on level ground. Um, and once I started, you know, telling friends and, and family, um, everybody was just like, you know, wow, I never thought of it that way. You know, I was always like the exception, you know, mm -hmm. junkies are like bad, disgusting people. And, and, you know, you're the only guy who's not, you know, like that. And, and I knew that that wasn't true, but like, since I started doing this, so, you know, like two years ago, um, two people on the planet knew that I had used drugs uh, after the age of 18. Um, I was 43 years old at that time. So, you know, as far as everybody was concerned, like I, I was on dope for, you know, two years and that was that. It was actually 16 years. Um, and there was something, you know, like I, I started talking to people um, and writing articles and, and you know, Twittering and, and Instagram and all that stuff. And, um, you know, it just like people started coming to me and asking for like, you know, go speak at this place or whatever. And, and you know, it it was great. I mean, because it was resonating with people because my story is so unextraordinary. You know, it's the norm. This is what it actually is. And that was a really, um, you know, amazing thing to meet so many people who were like, you know, my kid's also the exception. You know, this is also the exception. It's like, we're all the exceptions. Mm. You know? mm. So the stereotype is, uh, you know, the stereotype is, is the exception now. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so, um, and I think the way that you discover buprenorphine and understood right away that this could be the way out for you, yeah. along with therapy, yeah. is an extremely instructive story to tell for a, two reasons primarily i think number one by and large in the recovery community medication assisted recovery is stigmatized which i think is really fucking interesting very yeah because and hypocritical i might add because as a community we are stigmatized by the greater society yet 
much of the recovery community is very much guilty of stigmatizing medication-assisted recovery. And it it goes both ways. I mean, you know, I I was very um, consciously aware that uh, I didn't want anybody to, you know, my experience with with rehab and 12-step programs and all that was lousy but I recognize that it works for a lot of people. So I never wanted to, I I never wanted anybody to think that I'm bashing, uh, you know, I'm coming out here and going like, this whole thing sucks. Like this thing sucked for me. Right. And I'm aware that it's not a, you know, scientific medical thing. However, that doesn't mean like it doesn't work for anybody and and run away. So, um, you know, there are lots of people on the, you know, pro medically assisted treatment side who are, you know, like, it's kind of like the tables have turned at this point where, you know, ASAM recognizes medically assisted treatment as the gold standard. There are all these studies that are coming out showing that, um, you know, uh, uh, abstinence-based treatment increases the risk of, you know, relapse death and so forth. Um, and so there's a lot of people going like, ah, you know, we told you motherfuckers, um, (laughs) you know, that's not, that's not, I knew it. Right. Ha ha. I knew it. And that's just as, um, you know, uncool because there, there is no, there's, there's not going to be a universal path. I mean, it's like, I think we, we come at it from this recreational drugs. Everything's in the same category. Addiction is the problem. Like it's very easy to think that there's only one way to do it when you look at it that way. But that's just, I mean, in fifth grade, I knew that, you know, all, all these drugs were different. So like, why would there be a, you know, there is no silver bullet. There's not, there's not right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it, it's very interesting to see, um, you know, where, where that's going. But, I mean, I'm also out there with, you know, some, some other very, um, you know, unpopular uh, positions that, you know, I, I, I get why people don't like that. But, you know, I mean, overdose is, um, it's an overly potent dose. And, you know, I mean, my mom, who I generally use as like kind of the yardstick of what, you know, most people think, um, I said something about overdose like a year ago to her. And she said like, David, accidental overdose, you fucked up. You're careless. You don't want, you know, like that, that's what it is. And, and I, you know, my mom drinks like, um, you know, she'll have a glass of wine at dinner, you know, maybe two. So I said, and then she like switches to water or something. Tell me how this works. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I know. It's, it's I, I can't wrap my head around that as a recovering alcoholic yeah. that, you know, oh, there is these yeah. people that have a glass or two, of alcohol and then like switch to water or milk or something. Right. I mean, she guzzles a whole bottle. <laughs> um, right. But so, um, you know, so, so she's talking about, you know, overdose and whatever. And I said, you know, it, it's really, it's like if you pour a glass of wine um, and it's grain alcohol and you don't know it and you're drinking 33 glasses of wine in one glass of wine, like you're fucking dead. You know, well, I wouldn't do that because you're not going to buy a bottle of wine that's full of grain alcohol. Um, oh, Right. Okay. (laughs) Right. So, and I love that instructive story that you just told because absolutely I have to believe that most overdoses are not because the heroin addict is like, well, normally I do this much, but today I'm going to do eight times that much just to see what happens, just to roll the dice see what happens right i I have to believe that it's not whoa i didn't know it was that potent it's it's not but the other thing is like when i was um you know shooting heroin um i you know i I was militant about clean needles and Mm. 
you know, I, I would say like, you know, I'm so careful, but the thing about the measuring is, you know, I, like I knew like, you know, I'm going to shoot half a bag of dope or I'm going to shoot a bag. And, you know, I, I was very careful and precise about, you know, measuring it out. But if it's like, if you're measuring alcohol and you're pouring uh, six ounces of, of alcohol and you don't know if it's 3% alcohol right. or 98% alcohol, right. that's why people are overdosing right. because I could shoot a bag of heroin, but if this bag is 10 times stronger than that bag, right. and I'm still shooting half a bag, I'm dead. Right. Um, you know, so, so the idea of, um, you know, potency is by volume on every substance. We know the potency of legal substances. I mean, that's just how it works. You know, ABV. They regulate it for that reason. They, they regulate it exactly for that reason. I mean, you know, during prohibition, um, alcohol prohibition, people were, I mean, medical examiners were overwhelmed with. Um, alcohol poisoning. Alcohol poisoning, people were fermenting, you know, anything organic can be fermented. They were, they were fermenting, you know, fucking furniture <laughs> um, and, and wood. And, uh, you know, people were dying. I have a distant cousin who died from wood alcohol poisoning, you know, I mean, back in that time. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, so it seems to me that like, you know, we, we, we see the headlines about, you know, opioids are killing and all the Oxycontin stuff. And it's like, I'm not saying you can't die from Oxycontin because obviously you can, you can, any substance that can kill you, it can, it can kill you. Um, but the idea that like an 80 milligram Oxycontin pill is not eight times the size of a 10 milligram. They're the same size, just as eight ounces of vodka is the same amount of ounces as eight ounces of hard seltzer. Right. Um, you know, the difference is, you know, you know, with the Oxycontin and you know, right the on the label, right on the label, you can't fuck that up. Right. So, you know, of course, if you take too much Oxycontin, you're going to die. Um, but at least you can, there, there's no way to prevent overdose when you don't know what you're doing. And it just seems like um, it's not just hypocritical to say, you know, alcohol is okay and, and drugs aren't because alcohol is a drug, yes. um, you know, but the idea that like all of these fears of, well, you know, drugs are dangerous and they're illegal and that's why, and like all that stuff, it's like, this is the leading cause of death in America right now in a fucking pandemic. What are you afraid of that could possibly be worse than that? Like what's going to happen? Like somebody would have to come out of the, the, the legal drug, you know, container and, and shoot you in the head to be worse than, than what's going on right now. So it's like, you know, it's not a matter of, um, I, I talked to somebody recently in, in this other interview and they were talking about, you know, it, it's different what, I, what I'm saying, because most people are talking, you know, dude, it's only weed, like you should be legal, I shouldn't get arrested. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not interested in using drugs if they're legal. Um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not going to become a, you know, a, a meth addict if I can buy meth. I mean, I can buy alcohol, I've been able to buy it this whole time, I'm not buying it. So it's, it's, it's just about health and safety, like you don't have to use drugs to legalize them, you just have to not want people to die. Right. Right. And you don't have to advocate for drugs in order to legalize them. You just have to maybe think about it in a different light in that when we criminalize something and when we make it illegal, we're artificially imposing a number of outcomes because of that. Number one, it's not regulated, so we don't know the the potency of the product. Number two, you're getting it from places that other illegal activity is happening. So by virtue of that, it becomes more dangerous because it is associated with other illegal 
activity. And we have this, we're walking this sort of weird line between how we manage and how we treat folks who become addicted to illegal street drugs like heroin. And, you know, the, there are places that are thinking about this a little bit differently. And there are countries that are thinking about this differently and allowing folks to go into safe places to do their drug of choice, heroin, for example. And you know what? They also have recovery literature and they also have, you know, all this other stuff and what they realized and they've done some studies on this. They realized that nobody wants to be a heroin addict. It's amazing, right? Right. Nobody wants right. To be. right. So if there's some other ways to be able to deal with the whatever's going on. Imagine that. You know, yeah. They might try that. They, right? they, 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 they just might. They, yeah. I mean, and that's um, that's the thing is that like when you, um, you know, I was so ashamed to talk about it for so long because of the stigma. So, um, you know, if. Uh, um, if it was not so stigmatizing and I, and I wasn't so ashamed, um, you know, I mean, like I said something to somebody recently about the, you know, like, do you hear the way most people sound when they talk about drugs? Like if it was more of a, you know, understanding, compassionate, you know, not a, not, if we, if we didn't moralize it, um, you know, it would be, uh, we, we would, we would have an easier time, um, you know, talking about it. And uh, like Portugal with the decriminalization, I mean, I, I think a lot of people get hung up on decriminalization as mm-hmm. the solution. And it's really not because not getting arrested when you're holding the drugs, that's not when you're overdosing. It's the buying drugs that you don't know what they are and using the drugs with no way to measure the potency. So like not getting arrested in the middle of those deadly fucking things, like that's not, that's not saving you. Um, there shouldn't be criminal penalties that will go a long way in, in destigmatizing, no question, but like really the legalization and regulation is the only way this is going to end. Um, I mean, I, I keep hearing these stories about, I, I heard um, a friend in Canada the other day was talking about um, somebody had this crack uh, that was tested and it was um, fentanyl and uh, baby laxative. Oh my God. There was no cocaine in it at all. At all. At all. And, and there, there are people, I mean, you're here. And nobody would know that the dealer's not that. telling you that. And nope. the dealer does by the way, the dealer doesn't even know that because right, yeah, yeah. dealer doesn't know. So, I mean, I, you know, I would think that some, I mean, like I, I smoked crack a couple of times. I'm, I'd probably be able to know. And I'm, you know, certainly, a, a, a you know, with my limited crack experience, but what's happening is people who are getting the crack with the, with the fentanyl in it. I mean, there's fentanyl in everything right now. So people are, you know, cocaine, those drugs are not physically addictive. Like you stop, you, you know, you have a weekend of, you know, or even like a month of Coke and then you stop like, you know, it's sucky, but you're not uh, freezing cold and shaking and puking. Right. And that's happening to people and they don't know why. And they're going to the hospital in a pandemic and, and the doctor's going like, well, you're a junkie and that's clearly it. And they're going, you know, no, I'm not. I, I you know, smoke a bunch of crack. But well, you're lying to me you know, because junkies lie. Right. Um, and, uh, and they honestly don't know that they are addicted to fentanyl. So uh, tell me, David, you said that you take a number of controversial, let's get out with it. Yeah. What are the controversial mm-hmm. positions that you take? 
And why do you take them? Uh, I mean, it, it's really, um, it, it's legalization and, uh, and the medically assisted treatment. Um, I think it's really, and, and, and the medically assisted treatment is not just, um, you know, the people okay. It's the idea that like, you know, you're, it invalidates your sobriety. Like, right. I, you're not sober if you are not right. And, and that's fine. I mean, I, I, you know, I honestly don't care because I, I care about recovery and I think, right. um, that, kind of philosophy is, is, I mean, you know, what you were saying in the beginning of this conversation about how, uh, you know, it's, it's built for alcoholism. So yeah, if you, if you are, uh, living your life by, well, I'm only drinking beer all day, uh, you know, that, that's, that's a, you know, that's different than I'm on, you know, four milligrams of, of buprenorphine 24, you know, whatever it is, it's a totally different operation here. So, um, you know, of course you wouldn't be sober if you're doing, you wouldn't be sober. If I said like, well, I'm going to, you know, start, start doing meth instead of heroin. Like I wouldn't be, I wouldn't consider that, you know, sober either. So like, I, I don't know, you know, like um, Prozac and antidepressant, you know, anything mind altering or whatever. It's like, we're not, I'm not, I, I'm, you know, I've been on buprenorphine this whole time. Like, do I seem fucked up to you? Of course not. Um, you know, so, so it's really the kind of like, we can't, we, we have to look at recovery as, abstinence can't be the gold it, standard. Yeah, it, 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 it can't. And, you know, if that's what you want, that's totally fine. Do it. That's great. Um, if it, if it's important to you, but uh, too many people are being weaned off of, um, or losing access to buprenorphine. I, I, I know this woman, um, who I, I've been very, very, um, close with her since her son died, uh, in last summer, he was in rehab. Um, he got on buprenorphine, they were trying to find a sober living home for him within you know, hundred miles. There was nothing that would take him because he was on pupil. And so, you know, she didn't know any better when, when she called all these places and they were like, you know, you're, it's an extension of his addiction and he's got to come off. With it, blah, blah, blah. So they weaned him off and, um, and he overdosed and died five days later or mm. you know, less than a month later. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that like, that would be fucking unconscionable for any other medical condition. But for this, they spin it as, um, well, he didn't want to, he wasn't ready to get clean and it's his fault and, you know, whatever. And it's like, that, that's just crazy. Um, or even, you know, nobody, I mean, last, last year, um, I was on, uh, the doctors and they said, you know, well, you've been on this stuff for a very long time, you know, your addictions in check. Don't you, don't you think it's time to come off? And it's like, if I was like diabetic, would you say, well, clearly your diabetes is under control with the insulin. Why didn't you stop taking it? Like nobody's going to say that. So, um, you know, I, I just, I think we need more uh, understanding and, and that's really the stereotyping and that's, um, that's that. So, so, right. So there's that, there's the AA or there's, sorry, there's the, um, the legalization and, um, and just kind of the idea that, you know, the, the, the 12 steps are not uh, the, you know, only the only way to recover. Right. Yeah. You know, a couple of things that I think are instructive to highlight. Number one, Early on, you made a comment that I think is really, really important to revisit. And that is, when you first tried heroin, it really, for all intents and purposes, prevented your suicide. Yeah, it did. And so I think that's a really important thing for us to understand as people in recovery or contemplating recovery that many of us didn't have the tools right. to be able to deal with the overwhelming 
pain and emotions that we were dealing with. And the alternative very likely could have been suicide or yeah. would have been suicide. So the drugs helped. Yeah. Until they didn't, of course, of course, as is always the case. Right. But we invalidate that. I mean, in, in the process of, I mean, for years, I was telling people heroin's pure evil, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and and I'm invalidating my own reason for using it. when I, If it's 100% evil, then then I'm saying it did nothing for me except bad stuff. That's it. And that, that doesn't reckon with the reality. Right. And so, you know, when, when my parents, I mean, I remember sitting there with, with my, my parents and, um, you know, I was too ashamed to tell them, you know, why. I, I mean, I was too ashamed of the depression to ask for help in the first place. Yeah. I was too ashamed of the heroin to tell them why I was using it. They were too angry and scared and whatever to ask. We don't ask. Like we 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 find out somebody's on on drugs or alcohol or whatever it is, and we stop doing that. Stop doing that. This is terrible. You got to stop. And you go. You're right. Oh my god. You know it's so bad. But not. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? What are you trying to do here? What's what are you medicating? What are you treating? What are you trying to get away from? And that's the other element that I really wanted to highlight when I first walked into trip. Not first. I had multiple, but six. (laughs) Years and change ago, when I walked into treatment, my goal was not to get sober, David. Yeah. My goal was I never, ever, ever wanted to feel like I had just felt the day before. I never wanted to feel like that ever again. And I was willing to do whatever it took, like whatever. If you want me to be sober, fine. Right. I'll be sober, but I just, I cannot feel that way ever again. It's, yeah. it, it's unsustainable. It's unbearable. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. In recovery then yeah. is less about, you know, now physical abstinence for me is an important component, but it is not the goal. Right. It allows me, it affords me to achieve the goal, which is a fulfilling life yeah right yeah exactly exactly what david do you hope folks really get out of the weight of air a story of the lies about addiction and the truth about recovery um yeah i mean i i i hope that they see that um the exception is the norm that depression uh you know anxiety trauma emotional pain um that's the gateway um, and that, you know, re- recovery is a process and that we have to validate everything that's going on, the, the whole picture and, um, you know, and, and, and find what works for us and really be more upfront, um, you know, about it. I mean, I, I pushed everything down because I was so ashamed and, you know, it, it, it cost six, I, it took 16 years to get from A to B. Um, and really it took, it took longer. Um, so my, my recovery could not start until buprenorphine. Um, and when we recover out loud, David, yeah. not only do we erode and chip away at that stigma, right? Yeah. both about addiction, but also about recovery, medication-assisted recovery, we're also giving others permission to do the same thing. Yeah. To recover out loud and share 
that they too were able to recover from a debilitating addiction and that all pathways to recovery matter. And if they produce a meaningful and enduring recovery, they matter. Yeah. Yeah. And they should be talked about. Yep. They should be celebrated. Yep. So that other people can then try that on for themselves. And when they listen to this interview, they can, in a safe way, try that on for themselves and think, maybe that could work for me too. Yeah. Or, you know, even, I mean, you know, if somebody wants to listen to this and say like, that guy's out of his fucking mind, (laughs) that's fine. I mean, look, if you're so convinced that whatever you're doing is the only way to do it and it's the only way to do it for you, like, that's great. You obviously found it, but that doesn't mean it works for everybody. And that's the thing. Yeah. It may be the only way for you. Yeah. But it is not the only way for everybody. Right. Right. Yeah. That's it. I had to do recovery in only the way that I could that achieved meaningful and sustained recovery. And that was different than other people's recovery. I had to, in parallel, embark on a journey of therapy. Yeah. And EMDR therapy was really ah, critical for me. That's cool. All right. Nice. Are you still doing that? I'm not. Okay. Which I think is really great because the therapist, her goal was for it to be a finite Interesting. treatment. Okay. That I was be able to move through these traumatic experiences. And now when I revisit these experiences in my head or they visit me, they have so much less power over me. And they're so much less overwhelming than they were prior to going through that EMDR therapy. Honestly, it was magic. The way that it was able to transform how I feel when I revisit those memories prior to EMDR, they were debilitating. And it really felt like I was right back there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And today it doesn't feel like that. It feels like a memory and it feels like a very different memory. Um, Yeah. So it's really powerful, but that was my journey, right? Like EMDR is not going to work for everybody. Yeah. Although it seems to work for a lot of people. So uh, it does. I'm (laughs) I'm a huge advocate of it. No, it does work for everybody. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we changed our mind. It does work for everybody. Right. That, that's the only right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I haven't tried it, but I, I know a lot of people who um, swear by it. And uh, yeah, that's awesome. David, thank you so much for joining us here on the Way Out podcast. We will have a link to The Weight of Air. Cool. A story of the lies about addiction and the truth about recovery. So check the show notes right now. And that link will be right there, as well as contact information for David Poses. If you want to get a hold of David and tell him how much you related to his story, how great his story was, or how much you disagree with him, you could do that too. I don't get enough hate mail. (laughs) And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast land. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web 
at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.